Welcome to On the Way with Tony Chris. Each weekday, Dr. Chris will be discussing biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Tune in daily to start your day right and deepen your understanding of how to better walk the way and enjoy the journey. Here's your host, Dr. Tony Chris. Welcome to On the Way. This is Tony Crisp, and this is Podcast 176. All week, we're talking about the church of Jesus, the body of Christ spiritually, the bride of Christ spiritually, the building of Christ spiritually. But we're centering in on the concept of the local assembly, the Ecclesia, the assembly of the called out ones. And we're looking at the officers of the church. There are only two categories. That is the office of the elder, which is also called a shepherd, which is also called an overseer. The words are presbyteros, poimen, and Episcopus. They are all used interchangeably for one office, and that is the office of leadership. Well, just like in the family, when you have an office of leadership, that's the male role, then you have an office of fellowship. Now, whether we like that or not, that's what God says. It's called complementarianism. It's called all kinds of names, sometimes bad ones. But I just call it the biblical role assignments because, you see, just like in the family, when you have a husband and a wife, they are equal in essence, but they differ in role assignment and responsibility. Well, so it is in the church of Jesus. An elder is not better than a deacon. The ground is level at the cross of Jesus. But a elder... An elder and a deacon have differing role assignments. In the last podcast, I talked to you just briefly about the role assignment of the pastor. And believe me, it's just a very brief overview. Well, today I want to talk to you about the diakonois. You see, when Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, he said, I'm writing to you, Episcopos, those of you who are overseers and the diakonois, those of you who are deacons. Now, the word diakonoi is a or diakonos is a word that describes a particular type of servant. There are several words. You have the word huperetes as the word for servant, and that's an underroar, much like on Ben-Hur, and you remember he was a galley slave. Well, the Bible talks about you and me as galley slaves. You see, Jesus is the master. Now, I know that's politically incorrect language and terminology, but I don't really care if it's politically incorrect to this generation. I'm going to teach just what the Bible teaches. And the scripture says, those of us who are saved, who are born again, we are in the family of God. We are bought with a price out of the slave market of sin. And everyone in the Greco-Roman world understood what that meant. Because four out of every five that you would meet on the streets of Ephesus, Rome, or Jerusalem were slaves. Does that make it right? Absolutely not. It is wrong on every account. But we cannot erase everything in history that we don't like. The fact is, four out of five in the Greco-Roman world were slaves, so they understood 
slaves and masters. And Jesus used that terminology, and God used that terminology inspired through the apostles to teach, and we are bought right out of the slave market of sin, and we owe God everything we are. We are not our own. We're bought with a price, and so therefore we are to live and honor God in everything we do in our relationship with Him. And so there is the huperetes, the galley slave. There is the oikonomias, the oikonomia, the oikonomas, the house lawyer. No, the law of the house, the steward of the house. That's used, for instance, uh, when Paul talked to the church at Corinth about being a good steward. And that means that God has given every one of us a stewardship. Well, that's another form of servant. Well, the diakonos is the deacon is another form of servant. It was uh, used to describe uh, one who waits on tables. It was not some high and lofty position, but it was a very important decision uh, because it was an important position in the master's cadre of slaves and servants, and the deacon was a trusted servant. And so the Bible says in the book of Acts, when we're introduced to this whole concept, listen to what happened. He says, now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. You see, after Pentecost, when so many people were saved, people had come, Jews from all over the earth. Now remember, for the first eight years, there was not one Gentile in the church. It was all Jews. That's right. It was a Jewish church. And so the foundations of the early church were Jewish. Would to God that they still were today and we would get back to honoring the Jewish people and thanking God for them for what they have done in giving us the covenants and the scriptures and all the great heritage. As a matter of fact, most of our worship system came from what we call the Old Testament and out of the intertestamental synagogue period. That's what Jesus came into, and he could have come into the world at any time he wanted to, any time he chose. After all, he's God, but he chose to do it at a particular time, and that was during the synagogue system. So much of our worship Worship in our churches, an order of service, our litereo, our service is built around very much what it was in the synagogue system. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because Jews were at Pentecost from all over the world. They would come many times, save up all their life to come to Jerusalem, and they would come before Passover. They would be there for Passover. After Passover was first fruits and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, the first day of the week after the first Shabbat, after Passover, they would count 50 days, and that would be the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, Shavuot, the the end of the weeks. So they would stay for Pentecost and then they'd stay all summer if they could and be there for the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, the Feast of Booze. And those were the three great festivals that people would migrate to. And by the way, the Bible says we will celebrate all of those in Jerusalem during the days of Messiah when he will rule from Jerusalem.
Jerusalem. Yes, it's not over, folks. Jesus is coming again. And so it says that there were those who were saved, who were born again, who became a part of this movement of Jesus early on. And they were Hebrews that had grown up in the area which is Israel today. Now, many times when you read commentaries, it's actually comical. They will say these were Palestinian Jews. Palestine was not even in existence in this day. The word Palestine, as we know it, describing what is the land of Israel today, didn't come about to 135 A.D., almost 100 years after this time. And the reason was that that's when Hadrian, a Roman emperor, so despised the Jews that he called the country Palestine. Palestinia after the enemies, the ancient enemies of the Jews to infuriate them. He renamed Jerusalem, Alia Capitolina, and even changed the name of Jerusalem and barred Jews. And this was 135 AD. There was no such thing as Jesus being a Palestinian because there was no Palestine in name until 100 years after the resurrection of Jesus. So let's get over this. I read in the back of Bibles and maps, Palestine during the time of Christ. There was no Palestine during the time of Christ. Jesus was not a Palestinian. Jesus was a Jew from the Galilee, born in Bethlehem. And so we need to get our geography and our terminology correct as well. Now in those days, the number of the disciples was multiplying and there was a complaint against the Hebrews. Those were the people who lived in Judea, in Samaria, and in the Galilee. They were Hebrew-speaking, Aramaic-speaking Jews. They had the customs and the culture of the Jewish people that had been in Israel. But you remember the Jews were scattered all over the earth. The northern kingdom was decimated and scattered by the Assyrians to the end of the earth. The Babylonians, there were people that during the captivity and the exile that never did come back. And so these people under Alexander the Great were Hellenized. You see the name for the country that was that is called Greece and was Greece during the days of Alexander was first of all called Hellas. That's E-L-L-A-S with a rough breather on it that we translate or transliterate an H. So Hellas, when someone Greekized someone, they were said to Hellenize them. Just like if you're going to make someone English, you Anglicize them. These were Jews that had a different culture that were native-born there in the land. And then the Hellenists were those who had adopted the Greek culture. Their first language would have been Koine Greek. They came from all over the earth. They came and were saved, converted to Jesus, the Messiah. And they knew they couldn't go back home because now they were followers of what was considered a sect, not the Judaism of that day. And so they stayed there because they had spent all of their money. This is why you have people people pooling their money together and distributing it, especially to the widows, because they had no one to care for them. And the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews and Greek culture Jews, began to complain and say, well, all of you people are natives here, and we're the immigrants. We're coming in, and the natives are getting all the favor. Now, if you want to see this happening, just go to the mountains of western North Carolina or eastern Tennessee, and you'll see the snowbirds coming up from Florida 
and you will see the natives putting license plates in Tar Heel uh, sky blue, and they'll have native in the shape of the North Carolina tag. Now, they do that to say we're not from Florida because people from South Florida who have enough money, they'll have a home in the mountains, and they're there three to six months a year, and then they go back in the wintertime to Florida. They come to the cool mountains in the summer. I pastored a church in the top of that region of the Smoky Mountains on the North Carolina side and some of the greatest men and women I've ever known were from South Florida. They would come up six months a year. We're still friends to this day. Those who were there in the mountains, and they were the homesteaders, and they had been there for generations, many times they would resent someone, and someone would pull out in front of a native, and they would say, I'll bet they're from Florida. Look how they're driving. Or they would speak, and they'd say, well, they're not from around here. And did it cause tension? You better believe it did. And many churches it was a hindrance to growth. Well, this is the same kind of thing, only exponentially more in Acts chapter 6. It was such a problem that the apostles and the leaders had to say, we've got to do something about this. And so they said, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you, this is verse 3, seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, it doesn't say over the business, because you see the deacon in our churches run everything. They're like a college board. They hire and fire the pastor. They make all the decisions. They're like a corporate board. There could be nothing, nothing more foreign to the New Testament than this corporate America structure of deacons being in charge. The deacons were servants, and they were in charge of caring for those who had no one to care for them. They were in charge of, if you want to be in charge of something, of keeping unity and harmony in the church and keeping down dissension. That's why they came in. And the only other thing we see deacons doing is like godly Philip, and that is preaching the word of God and winning people to Christ. And so he said, the apostles said they would give themselves to prayer. And when you look at verse five, it says the same pleased the whole multitude and they chose Stephen who was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, the proselyte from Antioch. Did you notice anything here? All of those had Greek names. They were all Greek. They were all Hellenists. Now listen to this. You see, the issue was not with the Hebrew-speaking Jews, the Hebrew-cultured Jews, It was the Hellenists. So what did those wise apostles do under the leading of the Holy Spirit? They said, look, we're going to give you qualifications, and then you choose out from among you, and you bring them to us, and we'll assign them what they are to do. And that's exactly what they did. And the people chose out from among them, that is, those Greeks who were complaining, they chose other Greeks to minister unto them. So the Bible says in verse 7, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, why am I saying this? There are only two offices in the church. The elders are to lead the church, and what churches need to do is they need to choose elders to lead them. Then once they have chosen that, they need to let them lead and quit voting on everything. That doesn't mean that you don't have issues that you need the congregation to certainly get behind and pray for, like budgets and like acquisition of property and all those things that we have to deal with in our culture. 
But listen, let the people lead that God has ordained to lead. Do it with accountability. Why, of course, with accountability. The more authority you have, the more accountability you must have, or you will have dictators and tyrants and people who will take advantage of the generosity and the love and the trust of the people. That's never God's intent. But we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. But the deacons are to be those who are brought to the elders, and those elders assign them what to do. And what we have is just topsy-turvy, upside down, where you have deacons telling the elders what to do. That is opposite of what the Bible teaches. Now, I know some of you that are listening to me, you come out of Baptist churches and you say, well, we've got a board of deacons. Well, you need to get over it. And you need to let the elders lead. And I would say if you're a church of any size, you don't just need one elder. You need several elders because one man doesn't need to be in charge of everything. Now, I've been a denomination that that's pretty much the way it's done, and I've been a part of that. But I'm just telling you, as I've grown in looking at the Word of God, I believe in a plurality of elders, and I believe we need elders, and I believe we need deacons. And the elders need to lead and be the teachers and preachers of the Word of God. They need to feed the flock. They need to give general oversight to the entire ministries of the church. And there's going to be a lead elder. There's going to be a lead pastor. There's going to be a teaching ruling elder, yes. But that person will be accountable to the other elders, and uh, that's the way it should be. And as far as the deacons are concerned, they are over nothing except serving people and keeping harmony and unity in the church and serving those that are overwhelmed with life circumstances, and especially the widows and the mothers who need help, and those in the congregation that cannot help themselves. And the only other thing they need to do while they're promoting harmony and serving is leading people to Christ because that's what we see the deacons do. Now you say, well, that's just not the way our church does it. Well, listen, folks, what we need to do is get our churches in line with the Word of God and quit trying to conform the Word of God to our culture and our own whims and fancies. And we need to get back to conforming our practice and our beliefs and everything else we do to the authority of God's Word. Because you see, when all else fails, the Word of God will stand. And I would just say to the evangelical churches of America, if you think of the way that we've been doing things, Southern Baptists, if you think it's the way we have been doing things, independent Baptists, fundamentalists, whatever adjective you put on the front of your sign and your life, how's that working out for us? Now think about it. The church of Jesus in America is dying. The churches are dying. In Southern Baptist life, the vast majority are either plateaued, which is flatlined. That's dangerous, especially in the hospital. But it's dangerous in the church or they're in decline. Don't you think it's about time we get back to God's priorities? And it's not soul winning. I'm sorry. If you think that the number one thing that a man can do and the greatest thing a man can do is win a soul, you're absolutely wrong. And I'll stand before anyone and debate that based upon the word of God. The number one thing from Moses to Jesus is the same. And that is the priority is to love the Lord our God with the totality of our being, our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, and 
And the second thing is not soul winning. It is loving other people in the way that God's loved us and the way that we have been loved. We turn around and we love other people. And let me just say to you, if we as believers and followers of Jesus would love God with all of our hearts and we'd treat other people in the way that we should, it'd sure make a difference in how easy it is to disciple people in Jesus' name. Well, I probably have made half of you mad and the other half probably glad and it doesn't matter to me. What I'm going to do is keep teaching the Word of God. For On The Way, this is Tony Crisp. Thanks for listening to On The Way with Tony Crisp. Tune in every weekday for information on biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Fridays are for your questions. Email your questions to questions at TonyCrisp.org. Then just listen for your question to be answered on Friday's podcast. That's questions at TonyCrisp.org. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day on the way.